Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is sponsored by Issue and ExpressVPN. I didn't actually realise that I'd been stabbed. I thought that he'd punched me in the stomach. And so I realised that I had four inches of kebab skewer sticking out of my stomach. I didn't know how many inches I had actually in my stomach. And it's a very, very strange feeling. Today on the On the Edge with Andrew Gold podcast... It's always a bit of a mouthful, that, isn't it? On the, on the edge. I should change the name. Anyway, we've got Kerry Danes, a famous forensic psychologist who has worked in prisons and police stations with some of the most dangerous or sometimes misunderstood criminals and patients. She is often called by legal teams to examine their clients to find out if they had the mental capabilities to be aware of their crimes. She calls this mad versus bad. We talk about the nuances of mental illness and how it can be unhelpful to be diagnosed, as though the diagnosis itself seals one's fate. But when is a murderer responsible for their crimes, and at what point do we decide that no, psychosis or delusion is to blame? I raise the point that, outside of self-defence or assisted suicide or something like that, I think anyone has to have some level of mental illness to actually kill someone. I mean, it's quite a big thing. Kerry takes us through some of her most outrageous stories, which are recounted in her new wonderful and fascinating book, What Lies Buried, A Forensic Psychologist's True Stories of Madness, the Bad and the Misunderstood. A link is in the show notes. Among the stories in the book and the podcast today is the time a man stabbed her with a kebab skewer. We also talk about Munchauser by proxy syndrome, where typically a parent makes her child ill to get attention, And we look at just how often men attack and kill women and how sexist laws have been helping them get away with it. Sign up to our bonus chat on patreon.com slash andrewgold or just sign up to Apple subscriptions. In the next couple weeks, I've got Ian Leslie talking about how to argue better and Will Storr, of whom I've been a fan for many, many years, uh, talking about how all life is just a game with status being the objective. We're all trying to climb that status tree or whatever is a better metaphor. But now here's Kerry Danes talking about her lovely dogs. They might occasionally bark if somebody walks past. I have threatened them, but they don't pay that much attention to me. (laughs) Those dogs. What dogs have you got? I've got a chow chow, which is huge and weighs eight stone. And I've also got um, a Pekingese, which is tiny. I'm looking them up. Oh, yeah, I know what the chow chow is. Oh, my God. I love love big dogs. I love big dogs. I did have two chow chows, Hmm. uh, but one of them died and I've had to be a bit practical. So now, yeah, I've ended up with a Pekingese. So I've ended up with a handbag dog. But my dog doesn't know that he's a Pekingese. He fully expects 
grow up to be a chow chow so there's no small dog bad behavior from him oh that's funny god that's why i i grew up with it i had a little little dachshund uh when i was a kid and i used yeah. to walk it the thing is i was like six foot two by the time i was 12 or 13 i've stopped growing fortunately otherwise i'd be through the roof by now but i looked i felt always felt i looked silly walking the little dachshund but uh, no, if i got a dog all. yeah i'd get one now as well i love them so much but then the thing is you got you know 10 12 years and then and then they die again and i get all sad I know, I know. This is this is the thing. But uh, pick a needle last about sixteen years, apparently. So fingers crossed. Fingers crossed oh. for it. Yeah, a lot of the smaller dogs sort of live longer, don't they? Yeah, exactly. So I only got ten years out of my chow chow, and I was rather devastated. Oh, it's so, oh, yeah. gutting. It is. Well, I'm sorry that's, to hear that. But, that's okay. Know. Yeah. Well, I've got I've got Captain Fur Potato now, and he's uh, he's, he's he's settled right in. Oh, no, they are they are lovely. They are lovely. And you have, as well as a dog, I was going to ask you, you've got an inner anime warrior. Yes, yes. Who I, I could actually show you to her because she's just over there. She's in my tea cupboard. I keep her next to the tea bags, yeah. which means that I will see her whenever I need. Because whenever I need a little bit of inner warrior strength, then I usually need a cup of tea at the same time. So it, somebody bought her for me. She's got huge comedy breasts and large red hair so not dissimilar to me and uh, every now and again i look at her and she just reminds me that yes i can i can keep going i can keep going got a samurai sword though i've not got a samurai sword but you do maybe symbolically have one i think you you were saying you were writing that you would um and your book's wonderful by the way i i'm totally engrossed thank you yeah i think you were suggesting that everybody could have a sort of inner uh, some sort of symbol like that right it's just something to to draw on when you need it so it's that that figure that is perfect for you so whether that's nurturing gives you a kick up the bottom when you need it can be anything and mine obviously is this anime figure that somebody bought for me but I always ask my clients to create their own and I've heard absolutely everything over the years so I've had Basil Brush yeah you said well, who is Basil Brush I meant to I read at night and so I don't I don't and I'm like, it's like two in the morning I thought well who's Basil Brush it's not Basil Fawlty yeah Basil Brush because she thought that Basil Brush made her laugh yeah it's just a, a symbol from her childhood you've never heard of Basil Brush it's before my time isn't it I was born in 89 oh my gosh I, I have heard he- of Basil Brush. I, I've, and now I know what Basil Brush is. First appearance, 1962, in the Three Scampies. Yes, but Basil Brush is, is a British institution. I can't believe he's, he's recently been on, on the chase. How can you not know who Basil Brush is? I've seen the name everywhere. I'm always hearing about Basil Bloody Brush, and now I actually can put a face to the name. It's For anyone who doesn't know, which apparently is only me, it's a sort of um, teddy bear fox thing. Yeah, but he's very funny. He's a little bit rude and he made her feel safe and that's what it's all about. So Basil Brush would give her advice when she needed it. And it was apparently very good. So yeah, we had Basil Brush pictures all over the hospital where that particular lady uh, was, uh, I was going to say, was detained, Hmm. incarcerated, probably a better word. Bloody hell. I think I would have a miniature dachshund. That would be my inner warrior. Yeah, why not? Why not? Um, tell me about, I think you called it Kebabgate, unless I've now made that up in my notes, but did, I think it was you. It was me. Kebabgate was when I'd had a particularly, well, 
not that interesting day actually up to that point and I'd been working in a a house which was kind of like a halfway house between prison and the community so there were lots of people there who'd served time either prison sentences or they'd been in secure hospitals and um, I usually stayed for dinner not that dinner was particularly impressive it was squeaky chicken that day it was chicken kebabs because I wanted to avoid the traffic on the motorway home. And the, the setup was that one of the residents every day would do the washing up. So there was a particular resident, I've called him Nigel, it wasn't his real name. Um, he was doing the washing up that day and he was washing up a whole stack of kebab skewers. And when I walked in to give him my plate, he promptly thrust one of the kebab skewers into my stomach and I was I was stabbed (laughs) and I didn't actually realize that I'd been stabbed I thought that he punched me in the stomach which again was I I didn't really know this resident I hadn't had much to do with him at all and so I realized that I had four inches of kebab skewer sticking out of my stomach I didn't know how many inches I had actually in my stomach and it's a very strange a very very strange feeling and what was odd was I could see that Nigel was really very anxious he was like hopping around you could see that he desperately wanted to get out of that situation but I was blocking his way so I stepped aside and I just turned into some sort of school mom and said you can go to your room, go to your room, you know, and off he scuttled, which was great because I didn't want to be in that enclosed space with him after he's just kebabbed me. And then I staggered off to the um, the nurse's office or the, the office that um, the, the staff members were in. They weren't nurses, actually. They were support workers, uh, residential right. support workers. And I think it was a fairly new member of staff that was on duty and in the room that day. And the first thing she did was offer to pull the, the kebab skewer out. That's not oh. what you do. So you can imagine what my response was. I think I turned into the girl from The Exorcist. You know, my head didn't quite spin, but I yeah. kind of, you know, I snarled at her, you know, you keep away <laughs> from me, phone, phone an ambulance. At the risk of conjuring a demon in you, what, what is the medical reason why you shouldn't remove it? And I think it's the same with like, an, an, if you've been stabbed with a knife, you don't remove it. What's the reason exactly. for that? Exactly. I think because then you can have like geyser-like rush of blood, can't you, from the oh. wound. It's not. It's, so it's about loss of blood, I, I assume. But either way, she was not coming anywhere near me. I actually had to call for my own ambulance uh, that, particular, <laughs> that particular day. And I did have an operation to remove the kebab skewer. Everybody oh at work was calling me Donna for weeks afterwards. <laughs> Fucking hell. <laughs> and actually, it was a shish kebab skewer. It was, no, it was, it was, yeah, it was a shish kebab skewer, not a Donna skewer. But, you know, we shouldn't let that get in the way of a good, good piss take, really, at work. <laughs> and I wasn't, I wasn't massively harmed from it. Uh, physically or luckily psychologically I've had worse days at work if I'm perfectly honest well it it wasn't one of my best Um, and it turned out that Nigel was being used as um, a spice pig so basically he had learning disabilities he had various vulnerabilities and other men who were at his probation um, 
office were using him as to experiment on really to try all kinds of illegal substances on to see what the effect was and uh, yeah. they were bullying him and he wanted to get out of the the hostel and he didn't have very good problem solving skills and his answer to that was to commit an offense in the hope of being moved and of course he was moved he was moved right back to a secure unit for goodness knows how many years so i don't i don't have any hard feelings against nigel it wasn't one of his best decisions and i hope mm. that he um he's learned from it but it wasn't um well, people said to me it wasn't personal, but it was in a way because there were other people that he could have kebabbed that day. And he chose one of the few females that was on duty and, you know, the, the smallest one, really. So I think that had I been one of the six foot residents, I don't think that he would have he would have attacked me in quite the same way. But what, uh, what? yeah, that was that was one of my oh, one of oh. my days at work. But it was. The response to that that surprised me and actually prompted me to write the book. And that was everybody that I I told about it and I didn't give them any of Nigel's personal details. They all thought that that was part and parcel of my job. They thought that you know, I must go to work covered in Kevlar because people that I work with tend to have mental health problems uh, and therefore you know, they're dangerous to so what did I expect? And I realized that um, the way that we write about mental health and the way that we explain criminal behavior makes people who have got um, mental health problems seem far more dangerous than they actually are. So I wanted to explore in this book, obviously things that have happened to me, it's a memoir, so it's stories from my time as a forensic psychologist, but I wanted to score to to discuss the whole concept of madness and badness, really. I think that my ignorance on the whole topic, at least before reading this book, is similar to most people's. In that, when he's got the kebab skewer, I'm just thinking his head is just going blah like that, and just mad. That's madness, and he's just stabbing. And you've explained it in a very sort of no, he's not. He's actually very logically thinking. Well, there's there's a reason behind it. And Nigel, you know, he wasn't suffering from psychosis or anything like that at all. In fact, all he had was he had learning disabilities and um, he, he was being bullied terribly. Um, and so I'm sure that he wasn't in his most rational frame of mind. But yet there was some rationality behind it. So there are, there are always choices to be made. I always say that criminal behavior is a choice. It's just that some people have more choices than others. And I think that he felt that he had very limited choice in the environment that he was in. And he had a history of fire setting. And every time he'd set a fire, it had resulted in him being moved. So he'd been moved from you know care home to care home, to institution to institution. Eventually he'd been moved to a secure unit. So, um, and he'd, he'd, he'd actually done a course. It was, uh, I think it was fire setters awareness course. So he didn't set <laughs> fire. He didn't set fire to the building, but he did something that had the same function and it involved stabbing me. So whether or not he went off to do a kebab skewer awareness course, I've, I've got no idea. But I think what was important was that they hadn't actually 
targeted the underlying problem and the underlying problem was well his vulnerability and the fact that he was in an, in an environment where other people were going to take advantage of that vulnerability and the fact that you know he really had poor communication skills poor problem solving skills he couldn't tell anybody what was happening to him just quickly what is the, i've shown my ignorance about um basil brush what is the difference between a doner and a shish kebab i think that a, a doner kebab is is that thing that you have in hanging in a kebab shop that they 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 take the meat right. off with a knife don't they whereas a shish kebab is actually a bits of meat threaded on a kebab yeah. skewer so okay. I was sheeshed, I think, rather oh than donored. But that would have ruined the joke. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, fair enough. See, people say you don't learn on this podcast. That's, that's, what, that's what this is really about, the difference between sheesh and donor. I just wanted to tell you about today's sponsor, Issue. It's a really cool platform that allows you to turn your PDFs and other creative endeavors into something that really pops off the page. If you're looking to make an impact with your online content, Issue creates easy and manageable ways to bring your ideas to life. And what's great is it can format them specially for social media and other platforms. I use Issue for many different things, but mainly to create pictures for TV series ideas, uh, while other people use it to produce magazines, brochures, and other material. It's a way of displaying your ideas and showing people something a little different to the traditional static PDF, rather than just sort of scrolling through one of those old things. You've got these sort of minority report-looking futuristic media that, you know, move around and fit onto all different devices. It works seamlessly with other tools like Canva, InDesign, and Dropbox, so it's perfect for the creators, designers, and marketers among you. Get started with Issue today for free, or if you sign up for a premium account, you will get 50% off when you go to issue.com slash podcast and use the promo code EDGE. That's I-S-S-U-U dot com slash podcast and use promo code EDGE at checkout for your free account or 50% off your premium account. That's issue.com slash podcast with promo code EDGE. Have you still got a mark? Uh, yeah, I've got I've got a little oh, scar. My. I've got a two-inch scar actually. I could show you, but it might be a little bit, um, it might be a little bit more graphic. I'm not sure. It's, like it's on my stomach there. Well, I can't quite... There you go. Oh, I can't really. Uh, it's not. I've got a little yeah. scar, and I've also got scar tissue underneath it, which um, an ex-boyfriend did very kindly call my chestnut. He said that it was one of the best things. Well, in the top ten best things that he'd ever touched. So that was nice. But I do have a little kind of <laughs> hard, hard knot there. So it's a reminder of of Nigel, and a reminder that there's always something more to a story than meets the eye i think yeah absolutely tell me a little bit about mad versus bad what is the what's 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 that about well it's one of the questions that i'm asked all of the time and i do quite a lot of media now as well and you know was this person who committed an offense or did something dreadful were they mad or bad and it's almost as though you've got to be one or the other so they're mutually exclusive you can't be, to varying degrees, a bit of both, and you can't be neither. And actually, it's just not true. I don't think that this whole mad-bad dichotomy is a particularly useful one, but it informs most of the headlines that we read about crime, and in, it uh, informs the stories that are told by 
defence lawyers and prosecution lawyers in, in court. And I just think it's a really inadequate way of, of trying to explain hard to explain behavior. As I say, there's always a more complex story underneath. So each of the chapters in my book are stories that I hope that people would be interested in from, from a time as a forensic psychologist, but also ones that I hope show that mad and bad just don't cut it. They just don't cut mm. it as explanations. It's a really weird one because yeah, I, I keep thinking about as while reading your book, I'm thinking about uh, so, so somebody's killed somebody, and it, and the idea is their lawyer, I suppose, has to prove that they were mentally ill to have done so, so that they can not, so they can avoid prison. But I th- I feel a bit like anybody who kills, I mean, killing someone's a big thing. I don't think I know anyone who's killed anyone. Um, that's a big thing. So I, I think you have, don't you have to be mad to kill somebody? And what does that mean? No, well, you know, what is madness, really? Mm. This is it. So know. you're talking about what people think of as, as mental illness, which is usually, I mean, according to the law, to be to be deemed as mad and therefore not culpable for your actions, you have to have an abnormality of the mind. Right. But it's a bit, it's a bit circular because, well, to understand what abnormality is, what is normality? Yeah. So where's where's the cutoff, really? And you can say that if somebody is uh, maybe suffering from hallucinations, delusions, that kind of thing, then that's quite a significant abnormality. Mm. Now, you know, it, it's a significant um, state that most of us don't experience and it's likely to impact on your actions. But yes, there's always, there's always a choice, um, I say. But... What people don't understand is that it isn't just a case of, well, this person had an abnormality of mind, particularly where juries are concerned. People are deemed mad or bad based on a lot of things, and not a lot of them are to do with actually the state of their mind. It might be to do with their class, their sex or gender, their race, you know, or just stereotypes, just, you know, the, the tropes that we... That we um, see in the media all of the time. So men, for example, are far more likely to be um, to be um, convicted of manslaughter rather than murder on the basis of provocation, because there's this belief that women drive men into some sort of temporary madness. So, you know, if, if a woman is unfaithful or if she's uh, a bit of a nag, you know, she's uh, she's a bit gobby, this is why they call provocation the nagging and shagging defence, then that sends men over the edge, which I think is really quite insulting to men, isn't it? Well, I think so, yeah. I think it is. You you called it man's, man's laughter as well. I, I liked that, and I realised that man's laughter... Yeah. I was telling my girlfriend about that just before, and I did. It's just funny how the pronunciation's different in manslaughter and man's laughter. It's exactly the same yeah. spelling with a gap in it. Uh, was that the Frank part? Was that about Frank? It was about um, a man who I was um, not working with, but was around and about, and I'd taken notice of in one of the <gasps> yes. um, one of the halfway houses that I was that I was working in. Oh man, he he made my blood boil. Sorry, that that guy made my blood boil. Oh my god, yeah. Tell tell me the story of this guy and and the girlfriend and and the dog, right? Oh my god. Yeah, 
Well, I don't want to give too much away, but um, he had been released from prison and he was in this halfway house. And I never quite worked out why he was there because this particular house was for people that were very, very vulnerable. And he wasn't vulnerable in any way, shape or form. But he had established a new relationship, which was very much being encouraged. And it was just an off-the-cuff it was just a, just a meeting that I had with him that, that was, was entirely casual. You know, he'd wandered into the staff room when I was there. And I'd noticed that he had his hand on his girlfriend's neck, but it wasn't in a way that looked affectionate. It looked controlling. And when I'd said to him, you know, where are you going? What are you doing? It just, it just gave me a very offhand response. And there was something about him that I didn't like. And so as it happened, um, I managed to uh, see his girlfriend in the corridor and I asked her, oh, no, what are you doing? Are you going shopping today? What, what are you up to? Just as he appeared and she, she almost froze. She didn't want, to, you know, she didn't want to give me too much information. And again, he came, he put his hand on her and he just said to me, just enough the cuff, you know, you're very nosy, aren't you? Well, I am very nosy, but he was just a little bit too much in my space and I didn't like him. And I wanted to know a little bit more about him. And when I when I looked into the case, I found out that he'd served half of a seven year sentence for manslaughter of his first wife. And actually looking into it, I think that that was, you know, it was entirely wrong, entirely wrong. I think he should have been convicted of murder for reasons that I go into in in the book. But it just it just made me think about his defence, which was provocation. And his, his whole story, this whole narrative that had grown up around him was that he was a really nice guy, you know, salt of the earth, you know, fine, upstanding citizen. But then his wife had told him that she was leaving and she was having an affair and she'd berated him. And because she was such a dreadful, dreadful woman. He had, you know, lost control of his senses, seen red mist, and he'd, he'd actually whacked her with a shovel on an allotment that they that they shared. And that's a decision, isn't it, that moment? It is. And actually, was it red mist? There's a lot of research now. There's a, a fantastic criminologist called Jane Monkton-Smith who has looked at domestic homicides, and she's found that they all follow a very similar pattern. So it's an eight-stage timeline. And one of the stages is planning and preparation. Huh. So these this, these stories, you know, that we, that we often see, how often do we see headlines, you know, husband snapped because of woman's affair? It, it's nonsense. Actually, more often than not, these offences are planned. And actually, I did find evidence too late to suggest that his first offence had been planned. But here he was, he was out and about, he had a new girlfriend. And then we found that um, there was a dog buried in the grounds of the hostel. 
and we didn't know who this dog belonged to. And I don't know how much should I say because I don't want to give too many spoilers away. There's a lot of stories, though, in the book. It's a, it's quite a long yeah. and beautifully written book with loads of stories. So I think we can do a few. And, and you'd be surprised. People still buy go and buy the books because they want, you know, no matter how much you say now, there's a lot, lot more to it, of course. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So um, we eventually found out that this dog belonged to the girlfriend and she was in a terrible situation that we had overlooked because as I say this whole narrative had built up around this guy that he was a nice guy he just snapped and he was back on the road to you know rebuilding his life and that almost as if he'd been the victim almost as though he'd been the victim and I think that we very narrowly escaped uh, a situation where possibly she would have ended up in in the grounds of the garden rather than just her dog but yeah he'd killed her dog because um he felt that she gave it too much attention i mean that's so when does that become madness because that is not how a normal person thinks is it unless other i don't know what other people yeah Yeah, but it's 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 not it's it's not how a decent person thinks well, actually, come on, we live now, don't we, in a society where a current or former partner of a woman, a male current or former partner of a woman, kill, kills kills her, what, every three days? Yeah, that's extraordinary. Yeah, and a woman is killed every four days, if you take into account all other types of, of murder as well. And men put women in hospital every every couple of hours in the uk so actually yeah this you know this this level of coercive control that she was living with and i'm quite sure that his first wife was living with before he killed her uh is is actually very very common and this is it we want to think that there's a clear distinction between them and us and that we have we have decent people and then we have monsters that commit crimes and it's just not the case i i spoke um in my first book the dark side of the mind which was much more about myself and my career than this second book is about i've let the i've let the the clients take you know center stage in the second book um i talked about when i first first got my um my job and it was a voluntary position in the um in the maximum security prison wakefield known known as monster mansion in the in the press and within within a few minutes of me having arrived at wakefield prison as a 21 year old a very naive 21 year old the prison officers who I thought were the good guys, you know, the good guys are the ones in epaulets and uniform. The bad guys are the ones in prison sweats. Well, the good guys were running a book on who would sleep with me first. And I was actually invited out by a man called John Hall. I declined the offer, thankfully. But a few years later, it was revealed that actually on his way home from work, while still in his prison officer's uniform, he was abducting girls using his warrant card to get them into his car using that you know that authority and he was i think he was convicted of something like five five rapes sexual assaults kidnapping so 
these people exist in all walks of life and they don't wear labels the labels that they get you know as i say can be quite arbitrary and they're given to them after the event but um i think that we need to really drop this notion that that they are somehow um of course they are an extreme version but they're an extreme version of the rest of us and that's what's truly frightening it's very it's just to to give you an insight into so i'm thinking from a narcissistic point of view right now and i've got this urge to be like but that's not me and i think every guy listening must want to say that and but i we can't i can't even i can't trust them and they shouldn't trust me I don't know. I'd like to think it's a small number of people, but maybe it's not. If three women are getting, what was it, three, every three days, a woman's killed by, I mean, it's just a lot of people. A current or former partner. And then, you know, add to that men who are stalking women, you know, domestic violence, you name it. And this is the whole thing that, well, the murder of Sarah Everard brought up, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So women were justifiably very, very angry. And of course, Again, this was another guy in uniform, wasn't it, who had killed her. It was a a serving member of the the police. And the backlash to women getting angry were men saying, but it's not all men. And I can absolutely understand that, but it really is all women who have been sexually harassed, you know, or worse, raped you know we've all experienced feeling unsafe every woman without a doubt has experienced feeling unsafe and I think the solution really does lie in the hands of men because it's not it's not you but have you been privy to a bit of lads banter that maybe you've joined in with or you've not called out well I don't have any friends but I, I, oh, yeah. well, maybe I'm maybe a specific not. example yeah but uh no my friends aren't very laddie that's the thing but I do yeah. know what you mean of course my my friends are you know we, we used to sit up all night talking on the phone we're stereotypically female I suppose in that sense the friends I grew up with yeah. we would just sort of chat all night um but obviously you know you come across when you're playing football and all that you come across those kinds of people um I d- yeah, I guess all you can do is go, hmm, if they're all like, you know, if you can't, you can't say to a bloke, not that I've come across many bloke like that, you know, you can't say to that guy like, hey, what you just did is a sexist thing, you know, he'll, he'll batter me. You kind of can say that. I don't think that he's necessarily going to, going to batter you, but you might, yeah, you might get, um, I don't know, you might get a little bit of backlash from it. But I think if more men, we're able to stand up and say, yeah. actually, yeah, not on, that it changes the culture. And this is it. I think it, what we need is a huge change of, in, in the culture. And the fact that um, I think that our culture does, does support this kind of misogyny in men. And, the, you know, the fact that, that, you know, that a judge is then willing to believe that somebody killed their wife in a in a fit of peak because she drove him mad and a red mist descended and that's only worth a few years in prison also 
you know, what does that say really about how, how we value the lives of women? So I'm getting on my feminist high horse here. No, and you're you're absolutely right to you're ab- absolutely right to and 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 reading the book it's uh, enraging you know reading about and I think you said some of the laws have changed recently to make them slightly less sexist. Uh, yeah, so provocation has changed a little bit, but only a little bit, and they've tried to change the law to make it easier for women because um, women who kill men tend to do so with a weapon of course so that means that they can't say well provocation uh you know because to 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 prove provocation you have to say that you know that the loss of control was immediate but only men have the strength to you know strangle a woman to death a woman's not going to do that she's going to pick up a weapon and so they changed the law to try and make it a little bit easier for women who uh, maybe had um been provoked by a years and years of abuse and had killed somebody again it's a choice it's a choice but like i said you know choices are limited aren't they in that situation um but it's 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 really not done enough and still i think that sentences for women who kill abusive men on average are about 18 years for men who kill their wives you're looking more at about seven or eight Wow. So there's a disparity there. And this is it. I think it's very easy for us in our in our ignorance um, to, to not really know. You know, I'm sure I'm sure a lot of your friends might think, oh, bloody hell, not another one of these feminists. No, I don't. I don't think so. But the thing is, you know, men do kill women surprisingly often, far more than women kill men and under different circumstances. And I think it's it's until sometimes you get the facts and figures that really bring the issues into start relief. So I like to litter my stories really with the with the facts and figures of whatever I'm I'm talking about, just so people get get more of an understanding really about the world that we live in. Yeah, I think the listeners uh, will be very on board with this message. Actually, I mean, it's a very, a very sort of centrist podcast you know but people are generally liberal and i think they're generally against the idea of you know men murdering women i, I think most people well, yeah it's, it's an easy thing to get to get uh against really. it should be yeah. yeah i think so and you know what i'm i know nothing about anything right but i'm going to go out on a limb and say the red mist thing is nonsense and only because i can't imagine it and because i don't get that kind of anger i can get sad if i walked in and my girlfriend was cheating on me i'd be really sad and i'd probably want to hurt her by looking extra sad and then just walk out sort of quietly like oh, yeah right, you okay. would you'd, you'd be really effed off really wouldn't you i would yeah. i might want to throw things however i wouldn't do that i wouldn't even yeah, throw stuff i just to kill someone that's a real step i i do you think everyone has it in them did you know there's been some interesting research into this that says no and that um there were obviously soldiers in the in you know in wars where they used to use bayonets and things like that that just couldn't bring themselves to do it so i don't think that everybody's got it in them I think that some definitely more than others for a whole range of factors. But then obviously, you know, you have to put that together with, with circumstances. So there's the whole thing, you know, whenever, whenever psychologists are having the nature-nurture debate, there's a nice saying by scientists, which is um, genetics might load the gun, but it's the environment that pulls the trigger. So the, the circumstances that somebody finds themselves in are so 
so incredibly important. So can I say that if I were an abused woman who had tried many different ways to escape and genuinely felt that her life was in danger, would I, would I pick up a knife? Would I pick up a hammer? I don't honestly know. I don't honestly mm. know. There's still a difference, isn't there, between, I mean, that, that sounds like self-defense and a way out as opposed to like the anger killing. I just can't imagine having that anger like somebody's betrayed me and now I'm going to kill them. Exactly. It's, it's fear, you know, it's fear that drives that, isn't it? But they're both strong emotions and strong emotions, well, mm. troublesome things, aren't they? Pesky they are. emotions. They yeah. are. Um, one big topic in the book is, and I, I think you don't like the term or you don't like how it's used, but Munchauser, um, which but people are fascinated by that. Syndrome. Yeah. Could you tell me about that? Yeah, Munchausen syndrome, it's had, it's been through various incarnations. So these days it's called a factitious disorder, which is a bit of a mouthful. And Munchausen's by proxy is factitious disorder imposed upon another. So basically what that is, is medical abuse. So it's causing somebody else to be ill to meet your own needs. So there's a story of a girl that I worked with who had had been deliberately poisoning her her baby son uh, with uh, amphetamines to cause him to to fit and could well have killed him could well have had a cardiac arrest and it also emerged that she would she was doing other things to harm him as well and this was because she enjoyed the attention that she got uh, she enjoyed being the heroic mother who rushed to her son's aid and, you know, was there in the hospital, you know, the ideal mum, really. She enjoyed that. Um, but she, she, she actually received a suspended sentence on the basis that she had psychiatric treatment, which I don't necessarily disagree with, but I felt that she'd got a very a very lenient judge because she'd she'd got this label of Munchausen's by proxy. So it was deemed that she was, you know, she was an ill person and therefore she she couldn't help herself. But this is abuse. And I think that if we call child abuse, you know, a specific type of mental illness, and by the way, I don't even like the phrase mental illness. That's not how I, you know, frame emotional distress. But yeah, she had psychological problems, but she she was doing this deliberately. She it was incredibly calculated the way that she'd gone about it. So yeah, I think that these these labels that we give people in psychiatric diagnoses can be used by some as excuses. And I very much felt that she wanted to tell me, oh well, I can't help what I do. You know, it's not my fault. I've got this this terrible brain disease, but I just wasn't buying it. It's just unfortunately, these days there are so many different psychi psychiatric diagnoses that somebody can get. I think there's something like three hundred and forty different psychiatric. I think you call it the big book of suffering. Yeah, yeah, the DSM, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is the book that is used by psychiatrists to diagnose people with mental health problems. I just call it the big book of human suffering because it's just like a compendium of 
lots of different ways that people respond to stress and people respond to bad things that happen to them in life or people respond to those pesky emotions that we were we were talking about and I think that a diagnosis can be very helpful for some people they go oh right okay yeah that's what's wrong with me but for others it's a label that they can use as an excuse or actually it's a label that is used to lock them up or call them abnormal dysfunctional when really they're just they're just they're just human beings who are reacting in a very normal way to abnormal circumstances. In your job, is it very difficult sometimes when you come up against people who have done horrible things? I'm thinking of the woman who put a cling film over her baby's face to stop, her, stop it breathing. Is that the same woman yeah. as you were just talking about? Yeah, this is, this is the same girl that we were talking about. Mm-hmm. And she was, um, she was very middle class. She was very quietly spoken. So she... she she looked good in front of a judge. And also her mother paid privately for the, the diagnosis of Munchausen's by proxy. But yes, it was very difficult to, to work with her. And there's another case of a man who I worked with who had raped an elderly woman who also was blind and had learning disabilities. Oh and God. I'd actually worked on the uh, the case with the police to bring him to justice. So I knew exactly what he'd done, but then he popped up on my caseload years later. And it was hard for me to put those emotions to one side, but this is what you have to do as a forensic psychologist. Because often, you know, I'm not gonna say that I like everybody that I work with. I like the majority of people that I work with, but certainly not all. And when people have done really dreadful things, particularly if you have worked with victims or that specific victim, it's not something that I recommend working with both victims and offenders at the same time. Yeah, it can get very, very complex where your emotions are concerned. It, it's difficult. You have, to, you have to be able to park your own feelings in order to do the job. And for a moment, when I was confronted with this, this man who had got out of prison for the rape of the elderly woman, I, I really did get a rush of, of anger. And I had to, you know, really swallow it. I had to be aware of it. That's the first thing. Be aware of it, then take a step back. And I had to think to myself, all right, that's what he's done but who is he today? Because we're not just, you know, we've all done things that we're not, you know, we're not proud of. We've all done bad things. Hopefully we've not done terrible, despicable things as that was, but that's not the sum of who we are. So I had to look at him as more of a a complete human being really. And also a human being that at that point really needed my help. So that's, that's what I'm there to do. I'm there to do a job and do it, I always say, logically, so rationally, but also compassionately. But it did, it did take me a few minutes. I did have to just kind of take a step back, nip to the loo and compose myself before I was able to do that. 
and then calmed down. It's a difficult job. And are you a brave person? I'm thinking not just about those moments, but also, you know, the being stabbed like that. There was something that happened with a CD. At yeah, some well, you know, hmm. it being stabbed, that was, that was not a good day. I always say it was a very bad day. However, that's not the norm. And I think that there are other, uh, you know, public-facing jobs such as, you know, paramedics, police, uh, nurses that are in far more danger than I am. So I don't consider myself brave. I don't know, really. I'm just very used to working with offenders. And I'd much rather walk into a room full of men who had committed terrible offences and take charge of that room than I would, you know, be a primary school teacher. So I suppose we're just all cut out for different things, aren't we? A room full of children would terrify me. Oh, yeah. No, well, me too. What do you do? How do you get them to do what you... It's impossible. But <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. It's that time again to tell you about ExpressVPN. Did you know you can use the VPN to watch movies and series only available in other countries? I've lived abroad for years, so I've used it to watch everything from Rick and Morty's latest series at the moment in Australia to Close Enough's second season in Canada. You basically use ExpressVPN to change the location of your laptop, phone or smart TV. It's as simple as clicking a button and refreshing the page to see thousands of new shows in different countries. You can even choose from over a 100 territories, so you can be watching anime in Japan one minute and then Doctor Who in the UK the next. This works with BBC iPlayer, Netflix, Hulu, and any other streaming service. ExpressVPN also encrypts your data so you can surf the web anonymously. There's no buffering or lag, it just runs seamlessly in the background. Go to expressvpn.com edge to get an extra three months on ExpressVPN for free. expressvpn.com edge. Is there an adrenaline rush for you? No, not. No, no, I wouldn't say an adrenaline rush because I do my work very slowly. I think about it a lot, but there's definitely there's definitely a rush in really answering the questions that I'm asked. So the kind of questions that I'm asked are: Should this person be released? Are they still a danger to the public? What was this person's mental state at the time they committed an offence? You know, what can we do to get this person back out into the community, living life in a safe way? And I really enjoy the intellectual challenge of thinking about all of those issues. And I like people. And so I enjoy connecting with people. So there's a real joy for me when I'm able to have a really honest conversation with somebody or I'm able to help somebody, or there's a rush for me when I'm not able to do that, but I'm able to make a recommendation that actually somebody should be charged with murder rather than manslaughter, or they shouldn't be released from prison because that, you know, that might bring justice to a family or it might make the world a safer place. So I always say, I don't like to sound like a Miss World contestant, that, you know, I just want to bring peace and love and joy to the world. But I do want to make the world a safer place. If you don't want to do that as a forensic psychologist, you need to get out of Dodge, don't you? Because you're in the wrong wrong profession. And yet you talk about um, the, the, the concept that people can hire different ones to get sort of pushed towards oh, the yeah. verdict that they want. 
well, this this is it. And I I worked with somebody, a supervisor, many, many, many years ago, who I used to call Dr. Renton privately because he was Dr. Renton Opinion. <laughs> and it's not spoken about. However, the world of being an expert witness is, is very lucrative for psychologists and psychiatrists. And I have often seen it the case where um, defence lawyers will have a pet psychologist who pretty much says what they want them to say. And this is why we then end up in, in court fighting over diagnoses and, and various things. I'm not sure that an adversarial system really works. I think there are probably better ways to do it. Or I think that the same experts should should act for both prosecution and defence yeah. to, 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 to stop this. Because there are some people making very, very good livings out of psychobabble and bullshit diagnoses. Yeah, and also uh, TV presenters that you've been very critical of. And in particular, you really got, got to this guy. I'd never heard of him, actually, but this guy, Paul Harrison. Well, I was having a little bit of a rant in my book. It was, it was relevant. It was relevant to the case that I'm, that I'm writing about, but just about how popular crime and true crime is and how it's making stars out of certain people. And I have to hold my hands up. I do. I make crime documentaries. I'm writing books. So I'm one of those people. But I hope that what I do is that I, I tell the truth, and I, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't give you what I call bullshit psychology. I give you real psychology. But there are a lot of people who show up as experts on TV. Many of them who will call themselves psychologists, and they're not even qualified psychologists. But um, yeah, I did. I did talk about Paul Harrison, who was somebody who claimed to have worked with own, over seventy serial killers with the FBI in America, and he had previously been a police officer. Uh, I think that he worked with police dogs, but it emerged that in actual fact his whole history of working with serial killers in the FBI was nothing more than a figment of his imagination and this man had written you know 30 30 odd books he was doing theater shows that were selling out oh. to you know to audiences and I was actually told that he he would tell audience members that he was a friend of mine <laughs> and that I would turn to him for adv advice I'd never actually met him, although I'd had some strange emails from him. Oh. And yeah, and but what, what really made me laugh was the way that this whole story broke in the media because Peter Sutcliffe, now dead, obviously, otherwise known as the Yorkshire Ripper, I hate all of these monikers that they give to, to serial killers, but um, he heard that Paul Harrison was, was talking about him during his theatre shows and that Paul Harrison was claiming that uh, Peter Sutcliffe had said to him, oh, you make me very nervous. You know, you're, you're one of the few people who isn't frightened by me. And, you know, I find it disconcerting. And um, so Peter Sutcliffe wrote to the Sun newspaper and said, listen, I've never heard of this guy. And as far as I'm concerned, he's a complete wazzock. 
And actually, that sounded far more authentic from a Yorkshireman than, you know, oh, you know, you scare me, you frighten me. Um, so I think that when your reputation is being called into question by Peter Sutcliffe, you really do need to sit in a corner and analyse, you know, you, where you've gone wrong, don't you? You really do need to sit and think about your behaviour. So uh, Paul Harrison did come clean and say, well, actually, you know, yes, I was lying. And of course, he said, I've been having some mental health problems. I've been having some mental health problems. And um, his books were pulled from the shelves and he seems to have disappeared. But the... <laughs> You know, there's a, there's a huge industry, really, in people telling you lies about crime and criminals. And there's a whole industry uh, of people who, who are willing to give people diagnoses. And it has a knock-on effect because I think that when we say this person did this because they're a schizophrenic or this person did this because they've got a borderline personality disorder. What we're doing is we're just adding to the stigma and the discrimination that is, that is felt by people who have those diagnostic labels, who are absolutely harmless and, you know, and, and really genuinely struggle in life. So I think that we, we need to we need to start telling more nuanced stories and more truthful stories. We're giving others license, I suppose, as well to to you know, oh, you've got this. That's why you did it. Yeah, and as I say, you know, three hundred and forty different psychiatric diagnoses that people can choose from, and there's new ones being added to the DSM, the Big Book of Human Suffering, all the time. And eventually, every human behaviour is going to have a label of you know, mental illness attached to it. And actually, isn't an awful lot of it simply being human? That's an interesting point. I, I, I read an article in The Times the other day about that, about how uh, we're so keen to eradicate any suffering at all. So obviously, if somebody's suffering greatly, you know, we, we need to intervene. But any kind of suffering is now either, you know, you've got a mental illness and we need to give you some drugs or something like an Aldous Huxley Brave New World or something. When yeah. most of the great things in the world come from that kind of, you know, on a small scale suffering, a lot of the art and beauty and things come, you've, you know, if you want to have the rainbows, uh, Dolly Parton, something, something. Yeah, you know, this is it. And the problem is that we, we give it this label instead of saying, you know, you've had a terrible time, something dreadful has happened to you, you've been going through stress, you know, we've all been through coronavirus, haven't we? We say, oh, you're depressed, you're, you're, you've got this disorder or that disorder. The very word disorder makes it sound as if there is something fundamentally wrong with you. Do any of us really want to be described as disordered? You know, people think of it as a disease. All right, so you're disordered and diseased. Put that on your Tinder profile and see how many hits you get, see how many swipes you get. So it places blame on the individual. So we talk a lot now, don't we, about mental health resilience. So does that mean that if, if you suffer with mental health problems that you weren't resilient enough? You know, there's something wrong with you. You're not resilient enough. You know, you're weak. All of these things have some drugs well i'm not anti-drugs because drugs can be very helpful for some but they can be harmful for others 
But while we're handing out the drugs, what we're not doing is we're not looking at the root causes. So that lets a lot of, well, it certainly lets the government off, doesn't it? So pharmaceutical companies make huge amounts of money from all of these disordered people. But actually, maybe we need to start looking at the reasons why people are distressed. So maybe we need to start looking at the adversity that people suffer in life, you know, the discrimination that they suffer in life, poverty, all of these things. So it's a, it's a nice neat sidestepping of what the actual problems are. That's my issue with the whole, you know, diagnosis thing and the whole framework of human suffering uh, as, as mental illness. You know, our brains don't go wonky for no reason whatsoever, or very rarely. There's there's usually a stressor or a number of stressors. There's also, I guess, if you have that many things in, in the great book of suffering, um, it depends on the person. But I mean, sometimes it can be a comfort to hear you have something because it's like, yeah. oh, okay, that gives me an excuse for if I don't do well in anything. And, and then you end up sort of competing. I certainly engage in that with my brother, for example. We can both be, he's, he's got a bad something else. And I'm like, well, I've got this thing going on. Uh, do yeah. you know what I mean? We, we all compete for sort of, I guess, victimhood and that kind of thing as well. Yeah, yeah, we, abs- we absolutely do. And we get a lot of people these days, don't we, that say, oh, I've got a bit of this, you know, I've got a bit of bipolar, yeah. or I've got a bit of OCD, or I'm a bit sure. autistic. You know, so it just the, the boundaries between actually real suffering and not real suffering, but a bit of inconvenience, have, have got really, really blurred. And a diagnosis for somebody that is genuinely suffering can, you know, as I say, it can be harmful for some people. They don't want to be, you know, who wants to be told they've got a personality disorder, for God's sakes? Some people do, though, don't they? Some people, I think some people revel in that. No, I'm just a minority, maybe. Well, yeah, I think that quite a lot of other people who get that that label, you know, again, it depends what you want it for. If you want to indulge yourself or if yeah. you want to compete with others. Um, and of course, having a diagnostic label is very useful if you need something like benefits. And people do need benefits. And to get benefits, to access benefits, you've got to have the, the label. But, you know, I've worked with so many, and again, it tends to be women who are diagnosed with um, certainly borderline personality disorder, otherwise known as emotionally unstable personality disorder. And they think, God, there's something really wrong with me. My whole personality, my whole core being is is wrong. I'm a, I'm a bad, bad person. They don't think, well, actually, you've developed in a way that's probably quite understandable when you look back at your history you know you're angry well maybe that's because you know you were you're abused in childhood um you have difficulty forming relationships well maybe that's because your father was the person who abused you you know so it's it's we we really need a new framework I think a new way of looking at human distress and suffering and I, I get really irritated by the oh I've got a bit of this I've got a bit of that brigade you know, when somebody says to me, oh, I've got a bit of OCD, I sometimes want to say, no, you just got a bit of, you know, being a dickhead, really. <laughs> I used to have uh, really bad OCD. So I know that feeling. I know exactly yeah, what you're talking about. horrendous, isn't it? I was up. I, I pulled the, the, the handle on my car door. I was 17. I had a car, little, little, you know, thing. I pulled it so often to check it was locked. 
that I ripped it off in my hand. It came off in my hand, so I'm just holding the door yes. handle. And that was when I knew that like, I've got a problem here because I was like, up all night, every night, switching light switches and all that. Yeah, and I've, and I've heard of that so many times. So did a diagnosis of OCD, did you find that helpful for you or not? <sighs> well, I think it's more helpful than nothing because if I got nothing, it's like, mum, what's happening? You know, I was living with my yeah. mum and she, she was being kept up all night by me doing all the light switches and stuff like that. What was frustrating though was was the everybody saying, oh, I've got a bit of the old OCD because David Beckham yeah. at the time was talking about having OCD because that's why he... Yeah, it kind of became fashionable. Yeah, exactly. So I would come in like having not slept all night and just being so stressed and everyone else was like, oh yeah, I've got a bit of the old OCD, as you say. And it was very frustrating. So... I do know what you mean. I, th- I think there's, there is also that thing of, uh, you, you, you mentioned in the book, it's a little bit like that Munchauser thing as well, um, that we do like sometimes to be told that we're victims because we can get, you know, and, I, I, and that was enjoyable as well. A little bit of that, going to therapy when I was 17, I had to go and talk about the OCD stuff and I was being yeah. looked after. And that can be, that felt quite nice actually. Yeah. Yeah, but that is nice though, isn't it? And there's no reason why that shouldn't feel nice because everybody likes to feel listened to and everybody likes to feel looked after so that's 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 perfectly perfectly normal i think in, yeah in, in my case it probably was okay to be labeled with it but i totally understand why the labels are not helpful a lot of the time in my case for now for example it's it's good to know that sometimes my mind can obsess that i am prone to obsessing so that my reality uh, I have to sometimes check my reality and go, hang on, this is me obsessing and I know I've got that label and that, that can help. Exactly, and, and that's part of your makeup and your functioning as a, as a human being, isn't it? And actually, it's probably good for you to be able to take a step back sometimes and say, well, why is this happening now? So what else does that tell me about what is going on in, in my life? So, because I assume that, it, that it's worse at sometimes than at the mm. others. So I've got something called Meniere's disease, which is um, it's not a mental health problem. It's a physical problem, but it's it's exacerbated by stress. So I start to feel dizzy. Oh, shit. When, yeah, it's horrible. It's really horrible. It's an inner ear disorder. And mm. I start to feel really dizzy and the room will literally start to spin. And if I allow my stress levels to get to that state, then, you know, I can be done for for weeks. So it's, it's, it's actually been something that's been helpful for me because it makes me think, well, just a minute, where am I at at the moment? Where are my stress levels? You know, it's like a little alarm bell ringing. Mm. What do I need to do in order just to take the pressure off and look after myself? So, I, you know, this is it. You've got to look for silver linings sometimes, haven't you? And it's, it's, our, it's our bodies and our minds really trying to help us survive in a way. The mind's the most amazing, incredibly complex thing in the world, isn't it? Oh, gosh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I don't think we'll ever fully, fully understand it. <laughs> no. And maybe we shouldn't. Maybe we shouldn't. <laughs> Best not to, no. I wouldn't like, oh, God, yeah. I wouldn't like everyone to sort of be able to read my mind. I mean, or, or to, I was thinking about that earlier because I was, I was writing something about the science of secret keeping and stuff and that if you could, with an MRI or fMRI, read someone's brain like imagine that i don't think we'll ever quite get to that it's funny people think that that's what people say to me at parties oh you know i'm a psychologist oh are you reading my mind i'm like no i'm not a psychic although i think that a lot of judges would like me to to be a psychic it is very complex the human mind but equally i don't think it's rocket science that 
people do well when they are loved, cared for, listened to, as you said, you know, they've got food, they're not discriminated against, you know, they're warm, all of these things. Yeah. It's, it, it, really, if we want people to have good mental health, then these are the things that we need to attend to. These are the things that we need to concentrate on, but we don't, we, we concentrate on handing out drugs and just carrying on, you know, doing terrible things to the world, really. And that's what frustrates me. Well, that was a frustrating end. But what an amazing person Kerry Danes is, everyone. For more of her fascinating insights, get her book, What Lies Buried? A Forensic Psychologist's True Stories of Madness, the Bad and the Misunderstood. There's a link in the show notes. And for more of her fascinating insights, follow her on at Kerry Danes on Twitter. To continue listening to the bonus part of the interview, almost 20 minutes long today, sign up on patreon.com slash andrewgold or subscribe through Apple Podcasts. And remember to check out that deal with content maker Issue, that's I-S-S-W, as in two U's, not the letter W, I-S-S-U-U, on issue.com slash podcast and using the promo code EDGE. Um, and to download ExpressVPN as well using my promo code expressvpn.com slash edge. So that one's slightly different. Uh, I wish you well to use those. Um, also, a hearty congratulations to listener Josephine Hirschfeld on her marriage to Paul Staples. Paul is an old friend of mine who I haven't seen in more than 10 years. And he got in touch last week to tell me that he'd come home from work to find my voice booming around his house. Josephine had no idea that Paul and I knew each other and had just been listening to the podcast. So it's just one of those happy coincidences. Good luck, both of you, with married life. And I wish you a wonderful day and a happy life together. Thank you so much to Jeff in California for signing up on Apple Podcast subscription. And to the many others who have signed up this week, I don't have your names, but I really appreciate the support. Uh, And feel free to get in touch and I'd like to give you a shout out if possible. Remember to sub to my YouTube channel too. It's slowly growing, but needs more subscribers. Uh, Next week on the podcast is Ian Leslie talking about how we can all argue better. And then Will Store on the status game of life. So I hope you'll join me for those. I'm reading both of their books at the same time and learning a lot about the way our mind works right now. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a review on CastBox or Apple. This week, I had a review from JK the DJ in the US, five stars. He wrote, challenges me every week. Love Andrew's interview style. His discussions with guests have educated me, infuriated me, caused me to take a step back and reconsider and keep an open mind. Bravo. I love it so much that I've subscribed. Oh, that is lovely. Thank you for signing up on Apple Podcasts and for leaving such a beautiful view, JK the DJ in the US. I also got one from Remley on CastBox. I feel as though I should disagree with and hate every guest on first glance, though each episode is so very endearing that I find myself drawn to the guest and seeking commonalities rather than differences. I'm continually drawn to the middle as a conservative American, yet I don't feel judged by you or forced to swing unnaturally hard left. This guest in particular resonates with my personal belief so much that I wish I could move to the UK and teach at her school. Obviously, that isn't practical for me as I would have done so already if it were. 
That is in reference to headmistress Catherine Burble-Singh from last week's episode. Thanks again, Remley. I really appreciate your comments because that is exactly how I feel, that the world is so divisive and angry and we need some common ground. Remley's gorgeous review continues for a while and you can see that on CastBox, but I feel it wouldn't be very becoming of me to keep waxing lyrical about myself. But I read every word, Remley, and really appreciate it. And then there is Kerry Newton, also on CastBox, who wrote... I found this podcast quite by accident and it has been a breath of fresh air from my usual true crime genre. Andrew has some incredibly interesting guests and his style of interviewing is relaxed and friendly while still asking and probing sometimes uncomfortable questions. I find the podcast informative and entertaining and have recommended it to friends. I love that. I love that Andrew reminds us every single episode that he speaks five languages and that he did a documentary on exorcisms. I would hate to forget Winky Face. That aside, brilliant work, Andrew. Your dulcet tones get me through my baking. I don't know what I will do when I'm all caught up, which won't be long. Thank you. Oh, again, thanks, Kerry, and I appreciate the digs about my language and exorcism showing offness. Seriously, it was a very lovely review. Thank you very much. That's all for this week. I loved talking to Kerry Danes, and I'm excited about the next ones with Ian Leslie and then Will Store. See you then. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply.